0: You are listening to the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and it would be great to see you behind the scenes here at SASTA on Instagram, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But for the show's day, and as many of you know, it's not just me that can interview at SASTA, and the main man, Jason Lemkin, is a master of this. And so I wanted to bring you one of his finest today, from a recent conversation he had with Intercom co-founder and CEO, Owen McCabe. For those that don't know, Intercom is one of the fastest-growing SaaS companies of the day, providing a new and better way to acquire, engage, and retain customers due to their phenomenal growth. They've raised over $240 million in funding from some of the very best in the industry, including Kleiner Perkins, Social Capital, Bessemer, and Index Ventures, just to name a few. As for Owen, prior to co-founding Intercom, he founded an award-winning software design consultancy called Contrast, and co-founded Exceptional, a developer tool that was acquired in 2011 and is now a part of Rackspace. But before we dive into the show today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, JobNimbus, offering building contractors simple CRM and project management software in one integrated toolkit. Its top features include lead tracking, customizable workflows, document management, professional estimating and invoicing, and interactive boards to visualise sales and production pipelines. This makes for supercharged teams and happy customers. And you can learn more today at jobnimbus.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like JobNimbus did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. WePay's got this incredibly smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com. And speaking of being smart about your offering, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business, and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform, and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more, allowing you to see a 360-degree view of your reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is perfect for any business that is looking to increase conversions, build customer trust, and increase visibility on Google. And you can head over to Reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. And if trust is a core element of any business, so is communication. Enter Dialpad, the startup that offers teams a better path to unified communications. Build your voice with a business phone system, meetings, call center, and voice AI, connecting your team across all existing devices. And that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose Dialpad pad from weWork to Uber to Stripe and whether you're a one-office company with less than a hundred people to the names listed above dialpad has got you covered so put your team and communication first and head over to dialpad.com to find out more however that's quite enough from me so I'm now very thrilled to hand over to Jason Lemkin and Owen McCabe
1: Good that's perfect okay I think we're warmed up. I met Owen probably a little more than four years ago uh, when he'd been here for a little while, but Intercom was probably doing 20K a month in revenue or something like that.
2: Maybe a little later. Maybe, maybe was, a little more or a little it was, less? It was early.
1: You told me you'd never have a sales team and you might or might not hire a marketer. Does that I, sound about right? I asked to meet you about hiring a marketer. Oh, marketer. First well, the marketer. first time we met, you said you'd probably never have a sales professional in the company. This is a long time
2: ago. This though. is a long time ago.
1: Yeah, this is this is like 100 million in ARR ago. This is a long time ago, a revenue, right? So, no salespeople, yeah. Then maybe the third time we met, the question was, should I ever hire a marketer,
2: right? That was the question.
1: So where are you
2: on this continuum
1: of sales and marketing today, fast forward, especially since you're an application that enables both professions?
2: Right. So I think when we got started in 2011, there was just, say, substantially fewer software companies out there which built their tools to be kind of picked up in a self-serve fashion that were cheap enough to pay for with a credit card, that were acquired internally by the end user as opposed to some senior buyer. There was a few, but there was very few. And we had had such substantial early revenue growth without doing any of these things that the whole damn industry was saying you were supposed to do. Yep. And you know that there was and still is a big generation of software pioneers and leaders and investors who had only ever seen that other model, that sales model model where the company would manually reach out to a small number of named accounts make that connection, educate them on the product and thoroughly involve themselves in a quarters if not years long process of getting that system into the company, right? That was the way and so I was just super confused about the fact that we were experiencing all this revenue growth, we had no sales or marketing and the whole industry was saying you're supposed to have sales and marketing it was just confusing. And it wasn't like people hadn't been talking about the consumerization of IT back then. Like, Yammer, probably a bunch of people don't even know Yammer anymore. I feel like, <laughs> geez, I'm the old guy now. <laughs> It was pre-slack. It was pre Slack. It was pre Slack, Uh,
1: but but no one that built software used it. It was business guys. uh,
2: Uh But Yammer were kind of the primary and and key example of this consumerization of IT. Yep. You know, it was a big deal that this service was being adopted by individuals in a company and small teams, and somehow was supplanting the entire organization and some tools that were bought by the CIO. Like that was a big deal. Today, it's not even a big deal anymore. That's exactly how Slack grew, and so many of the software companies that people here are developing, similarly, will be acquired by the end user. You will just sign up. So that was new. So that's the background of that thing. It was me simply saying, and I don't think I said, but it makes for an, a nice, dramatic introduction to this evening. <laughs> but I don't think I said we'll never have sales, but I was super confused about the fact that the whole industry said you're supposed to have sales and marketing, and yet we're experiencing... You, I don't
1: think you growth. were... Ne- Stuart Butterfield in 2015 at said never. You did not say never. There is no question. Thank you. But you said it sounded uh, to be a while. But right? it was... Be a while. Yeah,
2: I was... Ju- I was it It was just unclear to me, let me say that much. I was always triggered by any advice that says this is the way it's supposed to be and you're supposed to do X, Y, and Z. That, always that patronizing advice is hard as a founder, isn't it? Well, yeah. First of all, it hurts my pride, and I have a lot of that. But then also, for anyone who is the type of individual who will want to get out there on their own, make their own name, put their neck on the line, aspire to be different and great and special, they're the opposite of the type of person that wants to be told what to do. They just are.
1: And then, talk about sort of the phase transitions as you grew. So, in the early days, actually, you put up gates on Intercom the other days intentionally. You made it intentional a little bit of work to deploy so that you'd have the right users and customers that remember right. Fast forward to today and it's all about the journey and revenues, many orders of magnitude larger. So what were the phase transitions to Intercom today? So I've had
2: many experiences in my life and career where my dogma has hit me in the face and it really hurt. And of all of the mistakes I've made and all of the weaknesses that I still have with me to this day, the one thing I feel so grateful to myself about is that I have actually been able to somehow, despite my, like I said, fantastic pride and stubborn nature, being able to walk away from some of this dogma, from some of these religious views. And for anyone who takes pride in their passion and strongly held beliefs, similarly, permit yourself to be wrong. You know, as someone who can simultaneously have very strong opinions and rip them up and say that I was wrong, those people will do great things. Because it's just true that the world and the landscape competitively and the talent market and consumers and everything else are moving forward and, the, and, and, and everything about the environment is changing. And if you don't yourself change, you will become obsolete. And if you look at any, I'm not equating to myself to such people, except I am. But if you look at any great artists, you'll see that they have managed to reinvent themselves and people who have sustained over the generations. So I'm a big fan of Kanye West, for example. We can yes. get into that conversation if we want to. I won't touch it. I won't touch um, it. It's good. Yeah. He's totally reinvented himself.
1: How often do you have to do it? I think it's every four to five years you have to reinvent it. I don't know. I mean, in Intercom point or or 3.0? I think we're approaching 3.0.
2: Approaching Approaching 3.0. Okay, so I can go through the... We'll get back to your actual answer. Yeah. Well, this is good enough, the 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, but keep going. Okay, we'll do that. So, the Intercom 1.0, let's say, was the one where we were experiencing growth. We were refusing to take advice from others. We said, what's all this sales and marketing stuff? We've got revenue. something doesn't compute, we're going to go it our own way. And that worked out for some certain amount of time. Then, I started to meet more individuals from middling companies that both had experienced a lot of like this inbound growth and I had a self-serve model who also had sales and marketing people. And I started to see the other side and the other perspective and respect and appreciate the magic that they can bring. It was just an education was all I needed. And there's something interesting about no things in the history of humanity are stable. All things change, but some things change over a longer time period. For as long as you and I are in the game, people will be doing things called marketing and people will be doing things Things called sales, people will be doing things called engineering, for example, just to pick three. But they're going to look different over time. The Intercom 2.0 was realizing that, hold on a second, this marketing thing, this sales thing, these are activities and tactics and strategies we need. They need to be reinvented for our world and reconsidered for who and what we are. So I'll give you a couple examples. It used to be the case in enterprise software, enterprise software, you're selling to big, big companies traditionally, but it used to be the case that the demand in the software vendor was created by sales. So sales would identify geographies and verticals, and they'd like list a bunch of accounts, and they'd split them up between teams and reps, and they'd reach out, and the outreach would eventually break through to some people, and then they'd start a conversation, and they'd educate them. And remember, this conversation ne- needed to be like, "Hey, have you ever heard of Intercom? Hey, here's what Intercom does. Hey, do you realize that is a problem that you have in your life? Like, there was so much work that needed to be done. And that could be like a whole golf course conversation to educate It could be a whole buyer, golf course right? conversation. Could take three to four. Hours. Hours if to you really play golf. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know how many people play golf in this part of the world, but no. But you when you bring it, it,
1: it sounds silly today. But when you bring up the, the point, of but that, but the market, totally it's like not a, so true. It was like right? a ton
2: of work required. And yet, in this modern world, education about a company—we can get onto this a little bit later—happens in just different modes and channels and vehicles and ways. So when we were getting started, one of the fir- one of the things that we did—we and we were one of the first to like really lean into this. I think we educated the market by way of our content. We started to talk about the things we were learning. We share those things with the world, and that that was how we kind of got the message out there that we existed. So that's just like one example of how in the old world it was sales that had to do that—the initial engagement, the education, creating the demand. In this new world, all of those things are still happening—education, demand generation—but just through a different vehicle.
1: And so, but the in the early days, I didn't really remember that content marketing did work for Intercom in the early days, right? Yeah, I felt it was more almost a viral loop.
2: It was kind of a mix. It was kind of a mix of all these things, and I, I wasn't reading the blog posts. I should have. I should have read the blog posts. I read them. I was there's a fan. but uh, 600 yes, now, so you're going to have to take right? the weekend off. Yeah. But I think the point is that all these types of activities, these fundamental strategies whereby you need to educate people about your existence and what you do and identify the fact that your solution can fix their problem still happen, but just in different functions and in different ways. So it just took us a second to identify that. And I think these things are well understood by now. But what sales ended up looking like at Intercom was rather than generating that demand, it was actually facilitating the adoption after that the man had been created. So it was just a different model where it was the product being different at the very start was the kind of core of the, the brightest part of the fire that created that word of mouth. Then that was built upon through our content, which got the brand in front of more people. Maybe there's a little bit of virality And then later came the sales team to engage with people who were interested, answer some of the niggly questions, fit their problem with our solution, etc., etc., etc. So it's just different functions playing different parts and different roles. And over time, this will swing back and forth or oscillate, and you're going to see these teams become more or less important, or play different roles, or at different stages in all these companies.
1: And are you? I should know this, but but so that makes at today's scale, you're not having to deal with CIOs, offices, and different types of buying decisions. Aren't you starting to hit that in bigger accounts or not really?
2: Our whole strategy was to start with the early adopters, the innovators. I, uh, for sure. But today... You, market, And yeah. slowly we're start, starting to talk to these yeah. people.
1: Bintercom is big enough, you can't be a rogue
2: app in your bigger accounts and your bigger name. I think the thing that no one realized back then also that's exciting and worth embracing today is that the market is just so much bigger than anyone ever realized. The that's market, what
1: we all got wrong, looking back to Totally right. About. No market, one knew, especially for software companies, SMBs, no one knew SMBs would be this big, did we?
2: Not at all. And it hasn't, it hasn't finished growing. And so what people now see as like a big opportunity for software companies and a massive market of businesses around the world that can buy your products, that's still the tip of the iceberg. To overuse the overused cliche, software is still eating the world. It's only getting started. Software's only getting started. The internet's only getting started. All these new devices, we're only starting to use them in new ways. All of the vendors in the different types of companies that will need to exist to help those types of companies that don't even exist yet will just blow up this market and globally too and the global part is really really key it is
1: and do you think so a lot of entrepreneurs will hear this story and get very inspired but the question is SMBs software everything's much bigger than we thought in 2011 I think it's orders of magnitude bigger but are the categories that can adopt software grown because the risk is that folks that are building products that can't ape intercoms adoption schedule want to. it's a greener grass. I'd love to sit in an office in San Francisco and get to my first couple million in revenue through sort of this content marketing viral inbound model. Does it work for more types of products, do you think? Do you have you thought through that? Are you saying like do these strategies work Well, Intercom, for... I may be wrong on this, but I think Intercom got to critical mass with sort of technology companies, software companies, early adopters that saw almost a next generation amalgamation of chat and a little bit of marketing automation and all this, and they said, "Wow, like, like this is ten times better than what I did before, but not all of us can sell to super sophisticated software companies in the early days to get off the ground. Has that changed, or can we all be intercom? Let me put it differently: Can we all be a mini intercom? Absolutely, why not? Totally I don't know. We, everyone, sure everyone, would like to do it the intercom, so Dropbox, Slack way, and they look at Aaron Levy and they're like, "Box is harder than Dropbox." Right? I don't know the answer. It's something to think
2: about. I think that it's all relative because the market is so much bigger than it was when we started, and because it's still growing so aggressively and because uh, globally and it depends which market you're talking about if you're trying to sell to other like software companies which is what we sell to globally they're all becoming more sophisticated and more educated the same trends continue to happen and i think there's just a lot behind that like software is now how would i say commodified a little bit like it's just so much easier to build software you need substantially less expertise it's getting into so many different types of niches some of the most exciting categories and Software right now are, are verticalized software where you're starting to see people build SaaS businesses for traditional non-technical industries. You know, I'm thinking like like construction and all sorts of industries that certainly five years ago never would have had software built for them because software was hard. It hadn't yet filled the gaps that were needed for the more technical buyers, and the people who cared about these more esoteric industries, these non technical industries, hadn't yet understood how to build technology companies. So it's still getting into all the places and you should imagine and think of a bell curve of adoption and when it comes to like the growth of the market and the growth of software and the growth of the internet penetration of software into industries we're still on that early phase the mainstream of what software will do is, hasn't even happened yet
1: let me dig, I want to dig into some intercoms specific questions after this but let me ask about one thing you brought up maybe not challenge it but dig in on this idea that it's easier to build software today. My learning just as a student is that it's probably easier to build intercom of 2011 to in 2018. But I think the bar has gone up. When you can procure AI from Google from an API and don't have to figure out how to build it, I am stunned by the quality of software that I see at a million in revenue. I think the products are so much better than they were four or five years ago that I I think the bar in some ways has gone up, even if it's easier to build, because the expectations are so much higher. Right? Everything's an API. Everything's available. So why can't your product be amazing? It used to be
2: your product could be pretty crappy at a million. (laughs) So it depends which market you're talking about. but the bar for sophisticated buyers has gone up. Yeah. Buyers who are in the tech world, they're that's probably making point. software themselves. Yeah. They want AI, insanely fast UI, multi-platform, all this stuff. Day 10. Correct. Yeah. Or at a millionaire or whatever, yeah. right? Like that's the expectation uh, in, internally in a business. But I'm talking about all these verticals, all these like non-traditional or like, sorry, non-tech traditional industries. Pick all these things like finance and construction and different types of like labor and trade. The bar is still rising there. So, like, if you're selling, and and I don't mean, like, I I know nothing about this industry, so I'm just going to make this up, but I imagine if you're building software now for a niche in the farming industry, it doesn't need AI. Now, it maybe can benefit from it, but it doesn't need it, because the competition there, not only does it not have AI, it doesn't exist yet. There is no competition. That's my point. My point is that the opportunities for software are still expanding, like the Big Bang, like still blowing up, still moving, and it's only at the hot little center, do we need all of this fancy stuff?
1: So let me talk about, well, we can talk about a lot of intercom stuff, but let me talk one enigma for me for intercom, having been a longtime fan of the CEO and the product, is it seems to me, both today and the beginning, the product has always done a lot, aspired to do a lot, even in the early days, and today you have multiple products and multiple verticals. I'd love to know how the hell you balance it, but before I even get there, I'm more interested in how you position it and market it. The, the most confusing thing when we first met, I thought I understood Intercom, but when we first met, I understood it less well after we met because the vision was so broad. There were so many pointers that your brain was going. So, how do you do that? Intercom isn't alone there, but there's so
2: much scuff going on at Intercom.
1: How do you focus it for customers, for the market, for other
2: stakeholders? So, I need to preface this by saying that the story has yet to be written around whether or not this was a good idea. You know, like let's check in in a couple of years to see if this worked. Of Intercom not
1: just being a one sentence product, you mean?
2: Uh, yeah, or the idea of trying to do everything being, let's just call it smart. Yes. You know, let's find out.
1: I guess if it's a suite 3.0, there's case studies on either side, right? Yeah, for sure. People I, like, want multiple point products, so they want something to solve all their problems that they can deploy in an hour. I just, I, I always thought about
2: it in terms of like coverage. You can cover areas in different shapes, and you could go vertically really, really deep into like one specific use case or topic or for one team or one industry, and you could solve all their hardcore complex problems, or you could go a little more general on a bunch of associated problems and start to deliver magic that comes from this suite, this interconnectivity, the shared data, the shared brand, the other things. And for me, I had seen tons of people do the really deep thing. So I said, let's try a different shape. Instead of like tall and skinny, let's do like short and stout. Different
1: shape, short and stout. <laughs> but now now it's sort of a, a, just a big square, isn't it, or something it's like a, that? Yeah, it's, it's not, not the functionality of those gets shapes. shapes. Yeah, it's an
2: awkward shape right now.
1: I know things like brand and corporate messaging are, you know, we we struggle with them as founders in the early days, but they do become important. How do you convey that to the CNBCs and to the Wall Streets of the world? I mean, you're not quite there yet, but how do you simplify this message? So, because more of us struggle with this than we might think, I think. Simplifying
2: of people and technologists and inventors and artists and makers and dreamers and people who like think in details really struggle with this reductive thinking. Like if you say, give me one sentence to describe Intercom, my brain says, there's just so much more than one sentence and there's so much the way the web communicates with its customers okay we're done (laughs) thank you everyone maybe that's pretty bad I don't know I don't know Uh, I mean you could do that but I can think of all the reasons why that doesn't work but you I'm sure I think it's a skill and I think it takes a different type of person and it needs someone who's like good at simplifying and someone who empathizes with the complexity that is involved in the understanding of the participant of the person who has to listen to my super complex definition and so really the secret is honestly starting to understand your strengths and weaknesses and bringing some awareness and consciousness to the way that you think and the things that you appreciate. Similarly, hand-in-hand with that, then knowing the types of individuals and people that are substantially and sufficiently different to you, such that they can complement you, and then learning how to like marry those two things, learning how to work with them. The Intercom 3.0 is us bringing in people who, traditionally in Intercom, they're not Intercom people, and they don't talk any sense, and they don't get us, but now we're, we're a little more you mean mature. employees or customers? customers? Employees Okay, very good. <laughs> uh, customers you need to don't
1: fo- get folks that have run the playbook before Well, they, no, they that's
2: part of it, but also just different types of skills, and so I'm talking if we're talking about branding, you know, we have people who like work in branding now and have experience in those pursuits, you know, together we can kind of bring both of those types of thinking to the fore If you look at any company including great companies, super successful companies, you'll see that they always have an angle or a skew You can point out the weaknesses of Google and Apple and their SKUs, but they're both also some of the most brilliant businesses and companies ever made, but they still have a certain angle. And for us, and for a ton of people who would start software companies, our angle and the way we're skewed is towards the technology and the product, thinking about what's possible with this thing we're building. And we have a very pure, simple, beautiful model for that in our heads. And now we need to learn, how do we like get that to the rest of the world? How do we learn to speak the language of the mainstream? How do we learn to work with people who are not like us who are quite different and kind of married up. How do you learn as CEO? Do you spend more time with customers? I'm spending a lot of time with people who are different to me internally in the company. We're learning how to find that common ground and we're learning how to like constantly reinvest ourselves and give up our dogma and our bull. Again, I I don't care how successful you think anyone is and I've got all my heroes and then my software heroes. These are the the Shopify's and the Atlassian's but there's a long list of software heroes that we're not nearly at and even they are having to desperately reinvent themselves I guarantee you there is no stage as you pass every five years like clockwork for sure and Shopify right now are going into a bunch of like fundamentally brand new areas for them and so reinvention and just ripping up your old strongly held beliefs is like of primary importance and that's just a facet of both the time that passes on the calendar but also the levels of maturity that you get to and the places in the market that you want to sell To also, if you're the type of company that is starting at the bottom, selling to early adopters and innovators, and wanting to sell to increasingly larger and more mature and serious businesses that may consider purchases, you need to reinvent yourself and change, even for just that, even if no time passed.
1: So let me just, uh, as a as a product centric CEO, how do and how many customers does Intercom have?
2: A bajillion, but how many roughly? Uh, the last I think the last number we
1: announced was twenty six thousand. Good enough so for this done. question. Twenty six thousand. How do you? Because it's always important to see How do you connect with these twenty six thousand customers? How do you? make Intercom personal to
2: them so they can bond with you, not just this thing on their website? What do you do? Yep, That's a really great question. I think one of the again, you know, so much of the advice and the wisdom that's out there comes from the enterprise software world where people say, as a CEO you're supposed to be meeting all your customers you should be closing the the biggest deals you should never be far from them, etc. When you have like tens of thousands of customers It's it's not actually physically possible. It's just actually not possible and yet we're a bit of a tweener in that we don't have hundreds to thousands of customers and we're selling to increasingly larger ones too. I think that, first of all, knowing that you are challenged in that respect is the first stage. What do they say about addiction and alcoholism? Like admitting you have a problem is the first step?
1: Yes. So um, Admitting you need to connect with
2: customers uh-huh. differently is, is part of the first step. Like knowing that you have like such a volume of customers and you're going to be challenged to connect with them is like the first stage. Moving on from the stage where you think you can actually know what they want and need. In the early days, again, we were building for ourselves people just like us and there was sufficient amounts of them. Now as we're becoming a little little more mainstream and we're selling to a more diverse and broad audience we don't know them anymore or I don't know them in the same way anymore because they're just different to us. There's tactics and strategies and different things you can do. We built a research team very early on and that puts a lot of time into talking to customers engaging with them surveying them they also collate all the feedback that comes in through Intercom. And is that actionable? Does that research take it Yeah it's pretty actionable yeah like the product the, team takes that the, and the, yeah, the great it. thing about the scale is that while you don't get the same nuanced, high-definition magic you can get from a one-on-one, which we still also do and I do, you do get statistically significant feedback and high amounts of data and clear signals about what the masses and the world need and want fixed. Yes, we use a lot of research. We have a product analytics team. We dig deep into our data. We like run a bunch of surveys. We run a bunch of interviews. We look at the feedback back in intercom. We put a lot of energy into listening to them at scale, but it's super, super hard. And so the thing that we've not quite got right yet is finding representative customers to create anecdotes to support that data. Because people talk so much about data-driven companies and how you're a bad person if you don't, if you're not close to your numbers. But humans don't actually relate to statistics. We actually can't inherently embrace the meaning of a lot of these numbers. The thing that resonates most with our full being is other human problems and so again the secret or the magic there is marrying the left and the right brain the data and the squishy stuff the immeasurable and if you can do that then real wonderful things happen
1: Do we? I've got a couple things I want to hit. do we have some questions with Slido? Alright let me I'll grab some of these but let me ask just one thing I wanted to touch on, so you hired a COO about a year or so ago, Karen Peacock, she was either our first or second highest rated out of 200 speakers at Sastrano, so watch the video it was a pretty good one, that was an accelerant for Intercom, both quantitative and qualitatively, wasn't it? So what, what'd you learn from that, from making that hire? We can talk about a million management hires, because yep. I bet you have 20 VP lessons, but we've all learned that someone like this can make a huge difference,
2: right? So wh- yep. what's the takeaway from yep. bringing her in? Takeaway is the following. One is it's a terrible generalization, but I don't think you can ever hire someone substantially more senior and experienced than you too soon. I really... You mean, cannot. You cannot.
1: That's the not that's the not obvious part, right? Yeah,
2: I like I deeply believe that. You should have was- hired her a year earlier. There, right? 100 without, without any doubt, right? No doubt. The earlier you are, the harder it is to figure out what you need. You're going to make mistakes, but that's okay too. So be willing to make mistakes. They do need resources. Sure, but they, they will figure that out. But no matter what stage you're at as a business, there is somebody out there who appreciates uniquely what you are and the business that you've created, probably appreciates it because they are not about to do it themselves and maybe feel that they couldn't, but they have a wealth of experience and knowledge knowledge and simply just time on the job and on this planet that can be so 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 valuable to you and i think a lot of us put it off because certainly when i've started to tell people like you could afford to do this sooner people say we're so early someone awesome wouldn't want to work for us at this stage we're not hot or we maybe we can't afford them or would they really want to like bet on this thing we haven't such and such a proof point but no matter no matter what stage you're at no matter what you have to offer there is somebody out there who will be a excited and willing to help you who can actually be very, very useful indeed. And maybe they will not be that COO in two or three years, and that's okay too. And you can have an awesome, wonderful journey together, and you can learn a lot from each other. Maybe they do become that,
1: but it's okay if they don't. That's okay. So try to bring in one seasoned expert that's a good
2: fit, as Absolutely. early as you can possibly find Absolutely. the Absolutely. And right?
1: seasoned is all relative too. It's all but, relative but maybe too. at
2: least five more years of doing Whatever this then you've, then you've someone done. Someone right? who's like a good stretch ahead of where you're at. It's and that's
1: the part, you know, this imposter Syndrome. It was funny. Mike Cannon Brooks at the Sastre Lister talked about how he has it at Atlassian. That was like half of it. I still haven't. We all have it as founders. I can't get somebody like that. I, there's no way I could get someone from Intuit or from Slack or from whatever. But no one's poaching from Intercom, so I won't bring that one up. But you think you can't get that person, but you can't. I mean, you can't. maybe one out of 20. You've got to go find them. That you person go hunt them right? My point is
2: like, don't paint some picture of some perfect person who won't work for you. Yes. Rather, That's so easy to do. Rather paint yes. the picture of the person who will because they exist. And they can be valuable to you. And you know, you need to take a good hard look at yourself for the reasons you're not doing it soon. And a lot of the reasons can also include worrying about maybe them threatening your position or you might be a little intimidated by their experience. Worrying. Did you ever you, feel that way? For sure. Yeah. You did? Well, I certainly felt. well. that's well, yes a sign of sure. weakness. It's interesting that you felt yeah, No, no, it, right? no. Not at no? all. Yeah. No, not at all. I mean, the truth is the very nature of the beast here in, in, in the Valley and in tech and And why it's so exciting and hilarious is that we're all learning for the first time people who like easily know how to do this stuff in their sleep which don't actually exist but there's people who've like done it a couple times before so it's way easier why would they bother doing this they're not doing it the only people truly motivated to do this are people who have something to prove and they want to do it for the first time and even people who've done it before they're motivated by a challenge that looks bigger than their last thing nobody starts a 10 billion dollar company and goes ah whoa I'd love to start the next one and make it 10 million. They don't so do that. got to be an order of magnitude Well, they're bigger, just yeah. thinking about the next thing. Well, and it may be different on a different scale or category, but they're looking for the next thing. And so the awesome and hilarious thing about this whole industry is we're all figuring it out on the fly. Every single person you meet at every single stage in your company, by the way, is doing it for the first time. Even the current peacock is a first time COO. So we're all learning. And so to be able to embrace that fact and bring consciousness to the things that you're being awesome at and also peace with the things that you're not good at and just love all of it and be able to put that on the table and be sufficiently vulnerable to say, I think I'm good at this and this and I'm excited about that and let me keep doing it. But I don't know anything about this, this and this. And quite honestly, I know about this and this and I'm bad at it. And to be able to partner with someone who can kind of compliment you and appreciate you for what you are, have a little bit of overlap. I think that was one of the lessons I learned when I went out there talking to potential COOs that people polar opposites are just going to be too opposite and too different. To it's our defined common ground. Yeah, a little, little overlap. overlap. But honestly, someone who has just that experience, who's just seen a couple of these things before, can't but be invaluable. And I hope that everyone here will be able to identify with the idea that every year or year and a half or two years, if not every six months that's gone by, you've realized how much of an idiot you are. What have you decided not to do? Yeah, as many products that we've got, as many opportunities we've looked at, we have actually said no to a lot of them. We've said no to a lot of acquisitions. At some point, you get thrown these opportunities Opportunities to acquire companies. Yeah, it's very distracting, isn't it? it? Can be very distracting. Have you I killed personally. anything that went into production. Yeah, we've killed no, we've stuff. Killed. Yeah, I've yeah. said no personally, but this is a lot about my personal style. I've let I've said no to just a lot of like potential meetings and investors and different events and Jason Lemkin opportunities. Thank you for coming. Down. Yes, I think you're more defined by the things that you decide to not do than the things that you are very yeah. really and completely. You know, you've got a whole buffet of options in every single category, and every single function and the wise and sustainable choices like choosing the little things that you nibble on over time. Having that kind of, it's not discipline, it's actually taste. It's actually saying like, because we actually would be excited about all these things. Actually picking the things that you are most excited about that are highest leverage for your company.
1: Let me ask a follow-up. Maybe you haven't had this issue, but I find it's a tough one. What do you do when your team as a group has decided they want to build something, a new product, or a a feature that will take a lot of work, and you know it's wrong. Like You know we shouldn't do it, and it's a significant strategic effort. It's not a break the company, but it happened a few times in terms of saying no, because sometimes the CEO has to put her or his foot down when everyone else sees it
2: differently. Or maybe that's never happened in, in the history of intercom. Yeah, but I
1: find it's, it's a tough time. one. Yeah,
2: it's kind of happened, but I think that the model of the CEO whereby they know all the answers and they are kind of like always 10 steps ahead of everyone that else. Fade. <laughs> uh, they don't exist. <laughs> maybe in the early days, it's like big party between whatever, but no, I just don't don't think that they ever really exist and so if ever you try to play that role you're playing an unsustainable position that you're going to run out of time with and so for me it's always been like highly collaborative i always encourage kind of dissent and open conversation yes. sometimes i have very strong opinions and i'll let them know how do you make people comfortable bringing up that dissent it's, it's not it's, easy no it, no it's, it's not easy it's it kind of a constant struggle in a battle i think sharing your own vulnerability first a start admitting when you're wrong telling people you don't know everything is half the battle. That's half the battle. And again, we all have these models for what a CEO is supposed to look like. And it's built out of our own insecurities because like we've said, we're all figuring it out on the fly. We're all worried that the people who work for us who may actually be smarter than us in a whole bunch of categories might figure out. So we get defensive. We put up this strong demeanor and we pretend to be that role model that maybe we've seen on TV or we've just imagined as a kid. That's just a total failure mode. And so I'm not saying that we've totally figured this out and that CEO title comes slow. Loaded. and even comes like, you know, there's people joining Intercom that had other types of CEOs so they've learned what CEO means, not even just from behavior, but I'm not even saying that my own behavior is correct but I think over time you can start to gently solve for that and make it substantially more collaborative. Ultimately the CEO is on the hook for the decision, they're responsible for that and accountable for the outcomes of that decision, but the process by which you make it can, and in my opinion should, be one where there is open collaboration and debate because when you give people an opportunity to disagree, dissent, control. Tribute, and then you make a joint decision, then it's their decision too. If you tell people like, hey folks, happy Monday, here's what we're doing, go. Even if people are like, okay, he's the CEO, We guess we got to do what we're supposed to do, it's going to be very hard to, for them to put their full weight behind it. It's just going to be very, very, hard. And if you
1: thought, my brief tenure in a Fortune 500 software company, I learned big companies, really big companies have one advantage a lot of startups don't have, which is it's easy, you're allowed to fail in a big company. If I'm at a big software company and I want to try to copy Intercom and I spend a year and I launch a good clone and no one uses it and we shut it down after 18 months you know who loses their job? Nobody. Because in a big company if you fire the people because their Intercom clone has no revenue, no one will ever rate like you'll just sit in your in your, in your your office not your cube and shut your door and work on. So, But sometimes with faster companies, it's hard to let people fail because if you thought about how to, if you allow dissent and, and challenge which is good, you also have to let people run with things. If you thought about this issue: How long you let yes. projects yes. and failures last before you have to rein them in?
2: We try to talk about the idea that we want Intercom to be a place where it's okay to fail, and it's more aspirational than the message. It's hard, isn't it? It's very hard. It's hard. I don't know. I think what's important is that if you've permitted an open dialogue and discussion, and you've made the call, and you're together going to go and make that bet, you need to like share accountability. The idea that then nobody's on the hook is the wrong model. Like we are on the hook. We failed. So I think first embracing that failure is the first piece. I think the truth is the way we learn in the world, uh, the model we have in our heads for how things work come from the outcomes of the decisions that we've made. Whether it's to come up here and try not curse, but still curse. Now I'm learning I need to be more disciplined, have more taste in the words I use. Or starting a certain project or drinking too much in that one night or whatever it was, whatever things in all of your life that you've done, all the different uh, mistakes and failures, that the personality we are is the outcome of all of these decisions so the truth is that you can embrace failure and say we failed but then you can also authentically say here's what we learned and i only gave it that whole preamble because without like thinking about how these things work it can sound a little bit like reaching for a silver lining like i hate where it's like hey this thing failed but the good news is I prefer saying, like, this thing failed. Here's why we made this decision. Here's the assumptions we had. Here's how we were actually wrong. Here's what we actually learned. Here's what we're going to do next. Honest, mature people are going to be like, okay, good, awesome. Because they knew they had an opportunity to participate in the decision, and the person is up there co-owning the failure, and they're not going to dress it up, and then they're going to move forward. So, like, nuance in all this, and if there's one, like, little cheat, it's simply to, like, somehow find your authentic self, like, find authenticity. If you can find that authentic voice where you can have sufficient awareness and self-love and confidence to be able to be vulnerable with people, everything else gets figured out. So much of these management tips and the tricks you read in book, I think are hacks for people not actually being authentic and real with people and vulnerable and open and honest.
1: It's a winner, isn't it? It's a total winner. If you're not vulnerable, you're not authentic. 100%. But it
2: it, it takes time to be vulnerable and and we all don't necessarily learn that growing up and a A lot of the experiences we have in life teach us to be more closed off and to protect ourselves which were important when you're in school and there's a bunch of bullies trying to call you a bunch of mean names yeah but later in life when they're gone away and you're in the grown-up world and you've raised a bunch of money and like you've got so much opportunity ahead of you you can often afford to open up and not be so protective and be vulnerable as a ceo even if you've only raised a half a million dollars and you've only got five people in your company that's really amazing very very few people in the whole world have ever done that you now should feel very proud you yourself and you should get ready to start to admit your weaknesses and flaws and the things that you failed at and start to open up with people and start to build some trust. If you can't do that you're gonna get nowhere.
1: Related to that authenticity involvement, what have you learned about transparency with the team, maybe customers or others, but especially internally? Like what uh, I haven't I haven't been to an intercom sure. all hands meeting, yep. but what have yep. you learned about transparency? Yep.
2: So I'll say a co- couple things. First of all, I'm still learning how to do it and how to get better at it. That said, just FYI, whenever we do an employee engagement Survey, it always comes back. Oh my God, we're super transparent. So I think we're already pretty good so well at it. Well, ahead of the media. But, but, you know. it, but it's an ongoing journey. One of the things I really struggle with is that when transparency started to get cool, I think the model that we all had in our heads for what transparent was was that all the information was everywhere. Everyone can know all things. But Right on your blog, right? Uh, all uh, all uh, your MRR, Absolutely. So transparent. Like, think of a model for transparency like clear glass in the meeting rooms. You can see through. It's transparent. It works. And the problem with that is. That by design, unless you are not a company built in the shape of the hierarchy where people have not only separate responsibilities of specialized functions across the company, but also like degrees of abstraction of responsibility, unless you are not like that, by design, people focus on certain things, have more context for other things than others, or they have different contexts. Put another way, I don't even know all the things in our company. So I couldn't complain about it. A CEO can never complain about their own company not being transparent, and yet they want. Actually, know all things because it's not feasible, it's not possible. Any given day in Intercom, I guarantee there's at least five things that went wrong. There's like five crises. If I found out about all five of these things, I'd have a heart attack, <laughs> right? But when they're dealt with in the I'm not the only one, yeah, right? But when they're dealt with by the right people with the right, people, with the right context, yeah, with the faculties to actually solve those problems, I don't need to know about it, and that's the same for everyone else in an organization, yeah. And so, like, there are a ton of things that, like. Like we don't bother everyone with. Why would we tell you about all the sh- that you can't actually fix that's going to get fixed by someone else? Like, How about you focus on the thing that you sign up to do? We're going to take care of it for you. I honestly believe in that. Then there's other stuff which is like oh the data we have is incomplete. It's like too soon. It's too early. We don't know the results of this thing. Again, let's wait and find the full data. The other is it's kind of like it's at a sufficiently abstract nuanced level where people in their careers just don't have the sufficient experience to be able to process that. That's the hard part,
1: That's right? Really the way you part. and I, the way folks in this room would look at transparency is not, it's
2: confusing to many employees. It's for, hard to process. Totally true. And, right? and, and, it's hard and, to process and, all those and, metrics. And, 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 and there's nuance in that message because it's not like you're not smart enough or you're not grown up enough. Yeah. It's just that you actually haven't gone through all the b- that I've gone through to know that this is or isn't a problem. And so like transparency is like a bad word for this. A, a better way maybe to describe it is how about we don't have unnecessary secrets? How about we kind of, like, side of transparency as opposed to secrecy, right? You can err on the side and maybe give people a little bit too much information, but you have to acknowledge that it's not going to be all of the information. For all of those I, I reasons, like that. Error on the side. So it, there is nuance to figure out and traverse there, but the model for transparency where, like, how about everyone just see all the things? It's chaos. I don't want to know all the things. <laughs> it, it's a
1: lot. Yeah, it's a good... All right, one last one because I know we've got to go, but I wanted to tie, let's go back to Business Messenger because I wanted to talk about Intercon 3.0. Where was that question? I think it was, so you've launched a new version of Business Messenger, right? And I think the question were, what were the, I don't know, if there, it may be too soon to have a biggest mistake or learning, but what, maybe what were the Zen learnings? Like, talk about the next iteration of the product. We can have the commercial too, but what were the higher
2: level learnings of, of shipping Business Messenger? I'll uh, give you kind of a squishy abstract yeah, let's, idea. Okay, yeah. Is
1: that good? Or we can do the commercial and the abstract abstract idea whatever whatever no, you that, like abstract
2: idea is gonna be more fun. Yeah, okay that's good so i think a lot of churches, including even sass are dangerous and talking about sass and specializing in sass for example are dangerous because they instill in us this certain idea about how we're supposed to be it's like adopting any identity even male or female as we grow up we're like thought what male means we're thought what female means we adopt these certain things rather than authentically saying like who am i and if you like study any sort of spiritual philosophical stuff for even two days you'll find quotes like trying to be anything other than you is a fail or the only identity is I trying to adopt anything other than I am is a path of friction in life and so I talk a lot about I will get to your question I promise I talk a lot about the idea that us calling ourselves a SaaS company or an enterprise software company is dangerous because it would have us look around and be like okay how do SaaS companies work and even if we don't necessarily do that the company at large and us when we're not looking, will start to like just tune into certain ways of being and we'll fit in by mistake, if not actually by design. A lot of times it's by design when people are scared, they'll just do what everyone else does. And that's really, really dangerous in an industry where you will only be valuable and win and be successful if you're not like everyone else. And so that's my little rant on just the idea of like too closely clinging on to these identities. Like there's equal parts a ton to learn from saying we are SaaS company. As much as there are dangerous, bad habits or similar traits you can adopt by accident and just look like everyone else by saying that too. To your question, we launched our messenger in the same 12 months in 2011 as Facebook Messenger, iMessage, Snapchat, WeChat, and a bunch of others. No one was calling the messengers back then. We thought that there was an opportunity to use the internet to build cool, new, personal, fun ways for people to connect. And of course, we were inspired and stood on the shoulders of the giants who built chat rooms like the yahoo chat rooms or irc or live chat products or even text messages as were all of these other messengers i just cited then over the years this word messenger came out or started to be adopted and everyone started to call themselves a messenger so it's only after the fact that we were like oh we're a messenger and then later we're like we're a business messenger where all of these folks were consumer messengers we're a business messenger and then we got to last year where i was like holy We've never actually consciously said this is what our future needs to look like and this is the best thing for us, yet it looks really like a bunch of other messengers. And I think that only came from the fact that we started to call ourselves a messenger and we invented this goddamn thing at the same time as everyone else. (laughs) So it's like, hold on a second. Do we really have to be like these other messengers? And I know that I'm like, I'm belaboring this point in a really ludicrous way. These conversations like this didn't actually happen, but maybe they happened a little bit but our new messenger was a specific effort to say hold on a second we invented this damn thing we get to decide what we are let's like shake off a little bit what a messenger is supposed to be and let's have a little fun with it so the new version of our messenger has a home screen and it has cards and you can customize it and do a bunch of cool stuff but you don't find on any other messenger for all of those reasons so i find the squishy stuff more interesting and so if we're gonna like put that into a nice little neat business card piece of advice it's like Be careful with the identities you adopt, whether it's for you as an individual and the role that you play, or whether it's the type of company that you are, or for the category that you play in. Just because someone says you're in this product category or you're in that industry, be really careful about all the stuff that you will consciously and subconsciously adopt, lest you become exactly
0: the same as everyone else.
1: That's a good way to end it. All right, Owen, thank you so much. This was amazing. Thank you.
0: Thanks. I mean, what can I say? Having listened to the quality of that questioning, I will soon be tendering my resignation. A fantastic conversation there between Jason and Owen. If you'd like to see more between them, you can find Jason on Twitter at JasonLK. You can find Owen on Twitter at Owen. It'd be fantastic to see you there. Likewise, you can find us behind the scenes on Instagram at hdebbings1996. But before we leave you today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Job Nimbus. Offering building contractors simple CRM and project management software in one integrated toolkit. Its top features include lead tracking, customizable workflows, document management, professional estimating and invoicing, and interactive boards to visualize sales and production pipelines. This makes for supercharged teams and happy customers, and you can learn more today at jobnimbus.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like JobNimbus did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. WePay's got this incredibly smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash and speaking of being smart about your offering, we all know that trust is a key component to the success of any business, and that's where Reviews.io comes in. Reviews.io is a Google-trusted third-party review platform and is the only platform in the world which collects, monitors, and publishes reviews to Google, Bing, Facebook, Amazon, and more, allowing you to see a 360-degree view of your reputation across the web with their robust API that allows you to manage your reputation automatically while achieving the industry's highest review collection. Reviews.io is is perfect for any business that is looking to increase conversions, build customer trust and increase visibility on Google and you can head over to reviews.io now and sign up for your free trial. And if trust is a core element of any business, so is communication. Enter Dialpad, the startup that offers teams a better path to unify communications. Build your voice with a business phone system, meetings, call center and voice AI connecting your team across all existing devices and that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose Dialpad from WeWork, to uber to stripe and whether you're a one office company with less than 100 people to the names listed above dialpad has got you covered so put your team and communication first and head over to dialpad.com to find out more as always i so appreciate all your support it really does mean so much to me and i cannot wait to bring you a very special episode next week